Hello, friends. I have a great guest for you today. Performing and visual artist Nancy Illman graces the show to talk about her newest passion in life, which puts her in a softer limelight. Her wisdom on shining big and small has changed my script for future guests, and I trust you'll find our conversation both entertaining and uplifting. Now, I did receive any feedback last week about Natalie's Nonsense Corner, but she's back again this week. She's great. But the kid is not satisfied with her small segment and is brainstorming ideas for her own podcast, which she has tentatively titled The Kid's Sandbox. So be on the lookout for special episodes in the future in which she takes the wheel, or rather Mike. I want to mention my newly launched Patreon page, which I'll link in the show notes. I have two tiers of patronage available to those who feel called to help support what it is I'm doing with my podcast and writing. The $5 a month supporters I have called my pom-poms and the $10 a month supporters my thunder. In return, I have bonus content available for patrons to enjoy. My vision is for this to morph into a small but engaged community, an interactive experience that blesses both of us. You can see more of my offerings on the Patreon page. An example of bonus content is that along with this podcast episode that you're hearing now, I'll be releasing to patrons the uh, recording of my hypnosis session with today's guest, Nancy. So patrons will get to see her in action. Now, I want to thank my first supporter on Patreon, uh, one of my pom-poms, Jason. And uh, Jason, you've always been very supportive. I want to thank you very much. Now, it seems that the universe, through different podcasts, articles, whatever, it has been encouraging us collectively to take our gifts and or passions, whatever it is that puts us in that flow state, more seriously. So you may notice that I've also updated my website. I've added a form to which you can submit your dreams for April-ish insights and suggestions. Now, I know that was a rather lengthy intro. Let's get to the interview. Thanks for joining me in Chef East Sandbox. I'm April D. Scheffler, and I invite you to play with me and my guest today, Nancy Illman. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, April. I'm so happy to be here. It's exciting to be in your sandbox. And I love that you said play with me because I also refer to my business that way as a play date. Well, in this segment, we pop into a virtual coffee house before hitting the beach. And being the benevolent host that I am, your order is on me. So what order do you give the barista? I thought you were being metaphorical. I'm like, where are we going with this? Okay, we're actually in a a coffee house together on the beach? We are, yes. Okay, I would like an oat milk chai latte, please. Uh, okay, you said oatmeal chai latte? Yeah. That's just with oatmeal milk, right? Instead of- oatmeal, Yeah, I don't use dairy milk, so I like to have my lattes made with oat milk. Does your beach barista have that? Oh, yes, it does. Okay, it wonderful. It has anything, 
like coffee, non-coffee, it, whatever you yeah, can. Yeah, I like a spicy chai latte. Got gotcha. it. Bring on the spice. Thank you so much. It's delicious. <laughs> well, now that you have your refreshing beverage, let's dive right in. Uh, guests are asked to choose a word or phrase that they would like to hear used more often in everyday conversation. Something that doesn't get enough play or enough airtime, and the prior guest chose efficacy. So you are tasked to try to somehow fit that word into our conversation today, okay? Okay. Now you also get to choose a word for the next guest to dance with. And it could be a peculiar word that you find funny or just something that resonates with you. So what are you laying down for them to pick up? As I told you, I lost my email. So um, the one that's popping up now spontaneously is symbiotic or symbiosis. On right. this podcast, we allow you to shine brightly. As Marianne Williamson said, your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. So as you play big, Nancy, are there any claims to fame, times that people may have seen you or your work? So I think I shared with you that in this life, I'm an experiencer. So I have experience performing in a variety of ways that may not be um, germane to our discussion because I know that we want to talk about astral play dates today, right? But I have a performance background. So when I think of shining, I think of a spotlight and I think of getting on stage. Um, and I shine in a very different way in my astral play date business. It's a much, um, it's a softer light because my work is really about supporting other people. When you were on the stage, what were you doing on the stage? What kind of performance? Being humility it? to performance is really important, but I certainly didn't grow up with that perspective. And I feel like my whole life I've been working towards um, embracing, even though I love what you said, I love Marianne Williamson and I love, love that quote. Um, I think it's also really important to embrace humility, even while you're shining your light brightly, because the light isn't coming from me. It's coming through me. I'm not the source. And yeah, I wasn't brought up with that understanding. So I feel like that's a journey for me to um, get out of the way. The work is um, something that I'm able to channel for people. I actually have a wonderful, um, I know you want me to brag, but I have, a, metaf I have, a, I have a, a bit of nature wisdom to share instead, if that's okay. Are we, are we flexible enough that I can do this? I feel like um, I'm a candidate um, at, a, at a debate who doesn't want to answer the moderator's questions. No, feel, feel free to answer the question me. or I kind of like when I have uh, attached, uh, approached the Akashic Records with a question, right? Um, mm -hmm. They've told me before, your question is flawed. <laughs> <laughs> Your question is flawed. So, okay, so Nancy, does, Nancy doesn't want to talk about shining. Um, I want to talk about the ocean and, and this new insight I had about the ocean. Um, so when I, when I sit at the ocean, I um, am so aware of its power. And 
from almost dying in a riptide, I'm extremely aware of its power. And in a session with a client recently, um, after sitting at the, uh, the, the, sitting on the beach, looking at the ocean and perceiving that, we then um, suddenly were lifted up to a cliff, to a high cliff looking down at the ocean. And that different perspective first showed that the ocean has boundaries, that there, the ocean is hitting up against the cliffside. So it's not limitless, first of all. And then the wisdom that came in after that, uh, I don't know if I can replicate the poetry of it, but it was something like the ocean that you perceive as so powerful does not have a plan. It's not calling the shots. The moon and the wind determine the in and the out, the, the flow of the ocean. So this powerful wave is the, the ocean allowing forces to work through it. And it's expressing the power that's worked upon it. And I was just blown away by that. And uh, I think I need to make a poster. Um, about maybe paint the ocean and, and add some words from that um, to remind me because I know the work that I do is powerful, but it was such a relief to re to remember that the power doesn't come from me and I don't have that much work to do, honestly. The work comes through me and my job is holding space and um, being a supportive friend being a good listener, being curious, and the doing is very small, the doing part. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really being there for someone and I, I don't have that much work to do. So that was a relief for me to realize from the ocean. Do you think that your parents instilled that in you initially that you needed to make something of yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm one of two children. I'm the older of two girls. And my father um, was a surgeon. And I was closer to him. I, I don't know, just birth order or whatever. I was his sidekick. I would go plant, buy plants with him at the nursery. I was his first mate on his boat. And I did rounds with him at the hospital. And went on emergency room calls and he was very disappointed when I um, decided I didn't wanna be a doctor. And he never really got over that disappointment. Um, and I spent the rest of his life um, trying to find something worthy of, or to make up for that disappointment. But the culture that I grew up in, which if your listeners are familiar with um, a suburban Jewish family, Long Island specifically, uh, the joke is you can be, you have the three choices, doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief, I guess, because we were, we were raised on stolen ancestral land. Um, and then it became potato field and then became suburban homes. I don't know, but that, that was the joke. You have three choices. So, um, and so you can guess probably from that, that I went to law school eventually <laughs> um, because performing and being an artist, visual artist or performing artist was not up to snuff. Um, so I 
eventually after wallowing in my parents' disappointment for a few years, I decided to go to law school. And it's actually good that I did because um, I have such a trusting nature and this just very open-hearted, um, generous soul, almost childlike in some way, my nature, um, to learn and understand how adults are expected to function in the world, in the country, the United States, um, was not something that was covered in my high school education or my liberal arts English degree. I just didn't get it at all. Uh, the implied contract of, of certain words being spoken and, and the repercussions thereof uh, just did not occur to me. So, it was a it was sort of an, a a court a three year course in how to be an adult in America, and then I went back to being an artist. With that with that knowledge, I also I also left my marriage, so it empowered me uh, to recognize how terrible my marriage was, and that I was buying it like by staying in it I was buying into a paradigm. So family law taught me that. And because I saw myself in the case studies. And um, and I just, yeah, I just understood how how adults navigate. So it, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's really helpful to understand basic contract law. And and I think I think it really should be part of every American education. But then there are many things that should be part of American education that are not. So how did your uh, family react about the divorce? Is divorce something that- That was um, new, I was a, for, uh, that was, I was a pioneer. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, I hadn't shared really about my marriage. I mean, when I, when there was an expectation that I would grow old in New York, that my family, as I shared with you um, before the podcast, my grandfather came from Poland to Pittsburgh 100 years ago last November uh, with his brother and mother, and then his father came later, and then eventually they had four boys in the family. And they moved to, he moved to New York. He was a communist. He lived on Coney Island and eventually became a Republican. Um, and he raised, he raised two girls in New York and then one of them was my mother and she's 81 still living in New York her sisters in uh, in her 70s living in New York and so the expectation was that I would uh, marry a Jewish doctor or a Jewish lawyer and grow old in New York that was the <laughs> so I found my Jewish lawyer at college um, and so check that box of, of family expectation, right? And then um, went to law school during the marriage. And then uh, we left for Ohio. That was not part of the plan, but I had accidentally chosen um, somebody who really wanted to move back where, where he grew up and did not want to stick with his Wall Street career or his Park Avenue career. So. Um, when I left during my pregnancy, when I left 
my family was devastated. But because I was moving to be part of a more prominent family, which is something that small cities have um, lots of, I mean, I feel like every small city has those, those families that think they're special. Um, they were like, oh, okay, so, you know, like she's leaving New York, so that's a tragedy, but, and she's going to a place that we never intended to ever visit, because, right, New Yorkers don't go to Ohio, but um, she's joining this prominent family, and they're very important there, so she'll have a good life. Like, I kind of get where they were coming from, but um, they weren't, they weren't exactly happy with him or with my moving to the flyover zone. Um, but I didn't, I didn't share the way my marriage functioned because I was ashamed. Um, I, it, I had low self-esteem, um, I think from having no sense of direction, from having disappointed my father, from not knowing what I would find to replace medicine as something I could do well. Um, and I didn't feel honestly worthy of love. Um, I went to college for two things, to find something that I could do better than music, because I wasn't allowed to pursue that professionally, and that was my, my passion growing up. Um, art wasn't even considered. So I'm, I'm here to figure out what I'm good at, because I have to be really, really good at something. Um, and I'm also looking for a husband. That was very clear. Like you're, you're going to this school because this is the most appropriate um, collection of matchmaking. People. What's that? The most appropriate matchmaking. Yes, exactly. I was, I was, I was pressured my whole childhood to get my grades to be high enough to get into Harvard. It's not so the very specific. So. Here you are, Nancy. Um, we have a very challenging package in you. A very like it's it's no wonder that I read Victorian literature in in college because this is so Victorian. Um, you know, like like Jane Austen, like the daughters are like this one's more marriageable than the other. So here's the problem about Nancy. She's very bright and outspoken. That's a problem, right? <laughs> For a husband to to take on. She's also very tall, and you know how men like to be taller than their bride? So, so that selects out most of the population. So we need somebody taller than her, but Jewish men to be, tend to be on the short side. So we have to go where there are a lot of Jewish men um, to find one that's tall enough and then willing to put up with her. This is basically what, I'm, what is being presented to me. Like, you're very, you're a very challenging package. We want to optimize, maximize your chances. So your job is get your grades up because freshman year, they weren't that great. You need to get into Harvard. Um, if you want to get married, if you want to find someone to put up with you, that someone we would approve of. So yeah, that's, I, I, I was not, um, my classmates are shocked. My classmates, were had families who were um, selling their home to pay for tuition for their child to have a career who were sacrificing in every way you could imagine and then some so that their children could have a chance to make something of themselves 
um, my parents were able to pay full price for the tuition so that I could, like you said, be in the ideal matchmaking pool. Um, and I was, and I, it was, uh, you know, it was the 80s. So it was post, it was post Betty Friedan enough that we were, I took a class called the politics of women's liberation. Like this was the mainstream conversation. And I knew that I was supposed to be a feminist. I got the feminist award graduating from high school. And yet I was in this incredibly fifties mindset about what I was, what my education was for. I was there for an MRS, but I, but I couldn't tell anyone that. So this is all to answer your question. I think, did they, did they approve? Is that what you asked me? Did they approve of my divorce? So the reason I knew that it would be okay with my family that I got divorced is that when I came home from, to visit everyone in New York, right after leaving my husband, my grandfather gave me a set of red luggage. Hmm. He didn't say anything. He didn't have to say anything. I just thought that was such a powerful gift from the, just everything about it. it. Had wheels, which was new. <laughs> my mother, my mother is still surprised by things I've revealed to her recently that happened during my marriage, and she's so like, "You never told me that." And I'm thinking, "Well, I didn't tell you because you would have blamed me," which is part of the reason. But also she would have thought less of him and been more critical, just like, wow, you chose poorly. You're, you're a failure. You know, it was just the, the shame that I didn't want to live in. Um, it is ultimately a decision you have to make by yourself. I also went to counseling with my first husband and I forgot to go to an appointment and um, my husband was furious. And as punishment, he made me go to an appointment by myself to make up for him being by himself. And that was nice because um, I got to talk about how I felt for a change instead of his needs, which is what we were talking about in counseling. <laughs> and um, the, the man said, you know, I, I don't question your commitment to this marriage, but I don't know what's behind it why are you committed to this marriage? Mm. Hmm. I couldn't think of a reason. I couldn't think of a good reason. So that was my counseling. I, I also saw, I started seeing a therapist on my own. Um, I was, I don't even know how many hundreds of miles away. I mean, Ohio to New York, it's pretty far. It was too far for me to get myself back to see family. I felt a million, I, I felt a million miles away um, and scared to be by myself. And I had been taught that I couldn't support myself. I was explicitly taught. Um, you will not be able to have the lifestyle that you're accustomed to or that you would want unless you marry a certain type of man so the implied in that is you could certainly not do it by yourself or with an inferior provider, right? So I, I was scared. I didn't really have a strong belief in myself, but I had to find it. And everyone has to reach their rock bottom. But the therapist said the strangest thing to me 
he said, well, you know, I was going back and forth. Do I leave? Do I stay? Do I leave? And he said, well, you're, you're certainly going to be when I, I guess I had decided and articulated it. Um, he said, you're certainly going to be more popular, more likable, more popular. I don't remember which one he said. I was like, that's a little what? strange. <laughs> Very strange. What are you saying? How can that be? And he's like, well, you're kind of intimidating. I mean, it seems like you have everything. Hmm. Um, yeah, like your life seems perfect and, and you're not that approachable from if someone doesn't know you, they just see the, you know, your clothes, your figure, your house, your, your baby, you know, like you, you have all the trappings and it's like, where's the humanity? So weird. Oh, wow. but, but, but I think what I learned from pondering that very strange exchange was, and what I now understand, but I really didn't then in my 20s, um, it is our brokenness that makes us human. Our vulnerability is what makes us lovable. When you are a fortress of, of pretend, because no one's perfect, but if you're projecting that you're perfect and self-sufficient, and I learned this when I was dating my husband, my real husband, I, I call my first marriage my training marriage. So when I was dating my husband, he had trouble falling in love with me because I was so good at being a single mom. I was so good at being self-sufficient, at working hard and holding it all together. And he said, I, I love these things about you, but I can't fall in love with you because I don't know what you need from me. I'm not sure that you need anything. So that kind of related to what my therapist said, I think. Uh, if you don't show people where you're broken. Um, oh my gosh, April, that's the part of the ocean I didn't tell you about. That was amazing. When when we went up to the cliff and we looked down at the ocean, not only did we see its limitations, but we received the message that underneath this powerful surf, this moving surface that we see, underneath is volcanic fractures and uh, tectonic fissures and the brokenness, the brokenness and the pain of the ocean we don't see that when we're sitting on the beach. Hi, my name is Natalie Rosna, and now it's time for drum roll, please. Symbol nonsense with Natalie. Dun dun dun. And now here is our riddle. What happened once a minute? Twice a moment, but never in a thousand years. It is the letter M. Because one minute only has one M in it. Twice a moment only has two M's in it. But in a thousand, but never in a thousand years, have it has no M's in it. You see how I'm doing it? Bum, 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 bum. Thank you. This is Season 2, Episode 2. And what your husband was saying about uh, not knowing what you needed, 
I have been contemplating that um, here recently, what like sacred union, it seems to be uh, something that's on the, you know, in the, con the collective consciousness right now is that what sacred union means mm -hmm. um, and a conscious union. Um, so basically you're supposed to be kind of doing your own work and uh, not need someone else to complete you because you're finding right. that within yourself. But then like some of these people, they kind of failed to really explain what marriage is then. Like why, why marriage if we're, you know, if we're completely self-sufficient and we're doing all this inner work, uh, you know, why, why do we need marriage in relationship? So mm -hmm. what were you able to come back to your uh, husband with, or what was he able to come to terms with mm -hmm. that makes, uh, marriage makes that sense? Shifted us, that shifted us towards yeah. marrying each other and, and towards being in love. Um, so I, uh, and this goes back to what I'm learning about my work. I allowed him to help me. It's not that I couldn't do it by myself. But just like I realized, wow, I can, if I see that I'm a channel, I can just hold space and allow wisdom to come through to my client. In my marriage and even dating him, I could realize, I wish I had brought my camera to work so I could capture my progress on this marbleizing job I'm doing downtown. And I told him that and he's like, well, do you want me to bring a camera? I can come and take pictures right now. Would you do that for me? You can do that? You don't mind? Like my desire is so valuable to you that you want to make time and make effort, put out effort to, to fulfill a wish of mine that I just articulated. That's some, you see, I don't need that, right? but I allowed him to do something for me. It felt great. It felt amazing that, to realize that I was valued, that my desires mattered because they didn't matter at all in my first marriage. I was absolutely there to be of service. And being of service can be very fulfilling, right? Nurses and so, I mean, I am a service provider, but if you're in a partnership, you're not supposed to be a service provider. You're supposed to be asking, could you please pick up dinner? Could you just figure out dinner tonight? If you don't want to cook it, just please take that off my plate or whatever it is that you've taken on for yourself as your role to be able to say, I can't, I can't do this today. I'm overwhelmed. I'm tired or I don't feel well. And to have a partner who can, who knows that their identity, it's not your friend who you're asking a favor of. It's not your next door neighbor or your cousin is someone who's committed to being your partner. And the two of you become this superhuman together, which is what single moms expect of ourselves that we'll, we'll be superhuman, right? Every single, every super, every single mom is superhuman. And yet I see single dads who are not asking that of themselves. They're asking their mom to cover for them, their girlfriend to cover for them, their, their, um, their ex-wife to cover for them. And they're really good at continuing to ask, especially women, 
to do all the things that they were that were done for them when they were married and women just exhaust and overextend themselves trying to be everything so i i did that for a little while and then i when i heard this message from paul i thought oh okay i'm going to let him do things so it didn't diminish me i gave myself that gift of trying on a partnership for the first time in my life where someone was putting our relationship at the top of his priority list i said to you i'm a very open person because you asked me what what would you like to talk about or not talk about so i said i'm very open i'm a channel and i'm an experiencer i've worked in a great many fields retail international marketing decorative painting aromatherapy reiki healing health and nutrition coaching. I've done food demos. I've been an art teacher for adults and for uh, toddlers up through age 17 for kids. I've been a professional dog walker and doggy playgroup facilitator. And I've worked as a poverty attorney at legal aid. I've served in a priestess role, performing several types of rituals for healing clients, including home energy clearing ceremonies after divorce or other trauma. All my life, I've been an artist. I'm a musician and a visual artist, and I've acted and sung on stage, most recently playing Fraulein Schneider in Cabaret two years ago. But when I'm performing on stage, I tend to be playing the violin and not as a soloist, so in chamber music or um, orchestra. I have three living sons, born in 1994, 2000, and 2002 and another son in the spirit world. He was a fraternal twin to my eldest son. I've been married since May 1999 to my second husband, Paul. I'm a Scorpio, so is my husband and my middle son, and we live with a dog and two cats. We're a Jewish family. My eldest son is a professional actor, and my middle son attends Brandeis University where he's majoring in linguistics and music. My youngest son wants to become an orchestral or choral conductor. I absolutely love being with young children and five-year-olds are probably my favorite. I adore making friends and do it all the time, which has been a little harder during the pandemic, but not impossible. And I enjoy being in very close long-term friendships. I absolutely love taking astral journeys with all sorts of people. It's such an amazing way to experience immediate intimacy and it feels like the biggest honor and privilege to encounter other people's spirit guides or to meet or rather witness meetings with deceased loved ones and to be able to witness and receive signs and wonders in this context it's truly and deeply humbling and i'm so grateful to have found this part of myself and to have been having these profoundly moving experiences i can only hope that i'll be lucky enough to have thousands of these journeys with people and dearly hope that they will of value and benefit. Thank you for reading that uh, introduction. I just thought that there was so much there that um, it just made sense for you to just read it as opposed to me trying to remember it all or um, sure. uh, put it all together. I, I like that you said that you are an experiencer. And um, I, one thing I covered in a previous podcast episode is called abundance is that even the things that we see as failures in our past um, or we didn't like so much 
the universe was like showing me uh, during a hypnosis session one time that um, there it wasn't a mistake that life is simply about experiences and that I had choice back then, even though I didn't feel like it, I felt trapped. Um, and that was regarding my, my work at the time. Um, but yeah, I just love that we, we're here to experience. And it sounds like you've done a lot of experiencing. And I also noticed in there, you included how with the hypnosis sessions, the astral play dates, that there's uh, immediate intimacy. And I totally, totally agree with that. I don't know, there's something about, at least from uh, the client end of that, um, you know, having been your client before, it's uh, something really intimate, like you said, about being in this new place together, right? Often neither one of you have been in this space before. And it's on the frontier of um, healing uh, where that happens. And, you know, sometimes like I was crying and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you have to be really raw and open with what you're experiencing to get the most out of it, I think. Yes. Um, I, I love that you have started um, your Instagram page called Astral Playdates. Thank you. And is your website still in the works or? The, the website is under construction, but um, it may, it's so close that by the time you share this podcast, it may already be up and running or very, very soon after. And that's also astralplaydates.com. Um, I am planning to start a YouTube channel. Um, I am just getting so much encouragement from all sorts of, of beings about, about this work. And I just feel so excited about it that I'm just gonna take advantage of all the platforms available to us and put some content out there. When I get messages like the one I shared with you um, about the ocean, I feel like there's, there's so much for people, for so many types of people to take from that, that I feel like it's, it's supposed to be shared. And when, when I do sessions with clients and I get the same message articulated by clients like three or four in a row from all walks of life, I know that's a big message for me, not just for my benefit, but to share that it's being given to me. I don't know if you know Brian Weiss's books, but he was being used as a mouthpiece for um, what he called the, the masters they chose him as a way to transmit wisdom. And so he had to, he resisted for a long time, but realized he had to publish um, these insights that were coming through his hypnotized clients' uh, voices to him. So I, I feel the same. I feel like I'm, I'm finally ready to step up. I, when I read Brian Weiss's books um, over a decade ago, and I used his uh, scripts, with my niece who was visiting to be an art counselor with me for the summer and with my neighbor down the street, random, you know, pseudo randomly. Um, I regressed them both using his script and I just, and then I just left it. I just left it behind like this freak thing that I did, like a little, like 
okay, <laughs> moving back to my real life now, you know, <laughs> back to our regular, regularly scheduled programming. So here I am, um, no longer living in Ohio and met, met Courtney and got invited to, to deepen my insight with her in a workshop and thought, well, who doesn't want to deepen their insight? And I had no intention. It was just like, oh, that sounds fun. I mean, we're in a pandemic. I can't do a lot of my usual activities. So um, that would be a nice thing to come out of this pandemic time with is deeper insight. And then I just spontaneously agreed to fill her missing practitioner spot, her empty practitioner spot. Um, and fell in love with this work. And, and, and part of loving this work is realizing you can't love it in, unless you believe in its importance, I think. Growing up, studying was always about asking questions. And that's sort of like so obviously Jewish that it's, it's cliche in some circles um, that you ask, you answer a question with another question. Um, and that's really my job is to help people ask questions so that we can receive answers. I'm happy to speak to the efficacy of my work at any point. I'm ready to use the word, but I just don't feel like we're naturally going there. So I am aware of the word. We'll get there, I'm sure. You can lead me there if you'd like to. Not that I answer questions directly, do I, April? What, I don't even know what I was answering. I love it, I love it. So, keep thinking about how we're not discussing anything that involves <laughs> efficacy. <laughs> you know what? I want you to not worry about it because I don't. I was like being the little, um, <coughs> the word police, you know, uh -huh. at the very first. And then, but then there was a, uh, early on, it didn't take very long. I was like, oh, we've gone to the end, but you haven't said your word. And they're like, no, I did remember. And they repeated it back. I'm like, oh gosh, you know what? I'm just going to say it, put it out there. And then I'm not even going to think about it the rest of the, okay. so no one's going to be, um, I mean, I guess we could get some fan mail, be like, you know, that man. I mean, we can talk about it. Uh, I think <laughs> what, what it comes up, what, what comes up for me about that is related to the ocean message is that um, one of the things that I, I do that I'm trying to do less of, I'm just trying to do less in general, but um, I was putting pressure on myself as I became more comfortable leading people through sessions, astral platelets, if you will, to add value, to, um, to be this wise woman. I'm laughing at myself as I tell you this, but it's true confessions. And uh, the ocean message was one of several messages. Spirit was like, oh, she's not getting it. Let's put it in another metaphor. Let's put it in another metaphor. I finally got it. So the ocean was not the first way that I was being told, your job is allowing. Your job is allowing. Being a channel is not being a wise woman. They're two different things. So, you know, when I will get to be a wise woman, either in my 90s or when I'm in a different dimension and I'm channeling through someone else, right? There's a time for and a season for everything. In embracing this work, um, this chapter of my life, of my diverse experienced life, um, 
the, the, the point is healing. The point is for the client to receive healing, receive wisdom, receive love, receive uh, an awareness of who, of their nature and the nature of the universe, like their place in it. And you know, if that's going to, if there's going to be any efficacy in that process, it's not going to be obtained by my putting in my two cents. And what I've found is that um, by inviting some friends, especially a life coach friend, to be a client, like really outspoken, strong, strong, feisty women uh, as my clients, um, I got the constructive criticism that when I put in my two cents, it's actually disruptive. And so the ocean does not disrupt the tide, right? Be like, oh, I feel like doing a little fancy wave over here. No, that's not going to work. We're all going this way right now, right? So um, it's not fancy Nancy time. There's a there. I have other ways. You know, I'm continuing to do art and music and theater. This work is allowing, and so focusing on the goal, the purpose of this, is the client's goals should be met. And so I want, I want, if I'm going to do a good job, then the client is going to have the most efficient and effective session. And that, and, and what I'm, and the beautiful relief of, of realizing this is that I'm doing less. So that is how it's healing for me. That is that we're both receiving and I can do that quietly. And I can stay small, even though Marianne Williamson is right to encourage us to be everything and not to hide. This is my special place where I can make myself small and quiet and be given a beautiful gift while I do that and to share a beautiful gift. So let's go to, uh, I was reading an Instagram post from the astral play dates and it was talking about how some clients have reported it as kind of like a virtual reality experience. And let me just say that as soon as I read that, I was like, yes, that's me. Because um, even though I can see things like I can see myself walking on a beach or I'm saying that I'm feeling wind, it's really, there is a sense of um, disconnection, like a, a step removed from that. So it does really feel like a virtual reality to me, like it's moving where I'm looking and things like that. And I can see what, you know, my hands are, are doing or where I'm walking. But yeah, it does feel a little separate for me. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's a, a protective mechanism. I'm not sure, but I have really enjoyed these hypnotism sessions. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, first of all, I didn't you know, because everyone hears about the, the Las Vegas shows, you know, where people are hypnotized from the crowd and they click like chickens and they do the, all these embarrassing things and they don't remember anything. Well, I did go into it with the expectation that I might not remember and that I would just be really deep. And part of that was, I'll admit, um, attractive to me because I am so much in my mental space. So I, did, I wanted that to be taking, 
taken out of the equation altogether. I, I didn't want that filter, that thinking mind online because I wanted to really experience like healing and all that stuff on a soul level, on a sub subconscious level. And so to a degree, I have been a little disappointed, but I think that judgment is, is shifting. But um, I was disappointed, at least initially, that my conscious mind is very much online the entire time. There's nothing I can't recall or mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. like that. And uh, I'll experience something and then I'll still have my thinking mind trying to filter it before I relay to the practitioner. And that's coming with practice where I'm trying to um, just allow whatever comes up to come up and communicate that. But uh, yeah, at least initially I was like, having to like play out what was in this virtual reality experience. I was mm -hmm. having to kind of let it play out a little bit to see if it made sense before yeah. telling the practitioner what was happening. Right. Just so that it didn't sound too off the wall or anything like that. But I think also what has been really cool about this workshop, this series of hypnosis sessions that we're doing in this January workshop with Courtney at least from a client's perspective, is that not all of my eggs are in one basket. So right. hopefully by the end of the eight sessions, you know, each with a different practitioner, I'm going to be able to look back and see a theme um, or a progression of healing. Um, because like my very first session was very disappointing because um, it was not all these visuals or anything like that. It was just a feeling. And it wasn't just any feeling. It was anger. Okay. No one wants to, <laughs> like, anger is not something that's spiritually enlightened. You know, it doesn't have that connotation. And it doesn't feel good. And so, but that's what I was dealing with. I was just having this anger. And the practitioner was great in that she was, encouraging me to come back for the next session and mm -hmm. she would send me midweek text messages asking oh, how I was doing so she was great and she said that yeah this is what sometimes happens is you're just dealing with an emotion you're not you know seeing things in your mental landscape or hearing things or anything yeah. like that you're just feeling. And so anger is what needed to be dealt with that very right. first session. And so yeah. it was, well, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. No, it's not, it's not fun. It's not fun or pretty. And, yeah, it uh, wasn't. The, dis the disappointment should be acknowledged. Uh, we are set up with, through, like you said, through, um, you know, entertainment forms of uh, hypnosis to expect something very different. But uh, the virtual, virtual reality is definitely descriptive of a lot of sessions, but then there are other sessions, like you experienced anger, some people, and I think there's a visceral component to experiencing anger. If I, I might be trembling, shaking with anger, feeling uh, tightness, um, my pulse, I mean, your, your body changes, there's not really a, a virtual reality feeling there right yeah That's, no the virtual reality right was with some of the other right, right. sessions. when you get the right when we had our session it was very visual but i think also there was a tactile contact point 
in in your at least what you told me that you felt even then when i was experiencing the tactile it was still very much kind of visual in a vir in a virtual reality type okay. way okay um and yet we're just yet, knowing like there but I are other experiences i know are waiting for you because just in the small the short time that i've been doing this and uh just a few dozen people people say they're so surprised at the strength of the sensation of healing a, f a few people who have had just a few have had and in, and very unexpectedly physical healing being given to them one that just their body was flooded with the sensation especially in her legs she was sitting there and she felt this energy just flooding into her uh, body and especially in her legs and she said uh, it was not what I was expecting at all but it was I just wanted to stay in that place and just receive and she communicated that to me so I just hung back and said tell me when this is complete I was thrilled she was receiving it and I just stayed in my quiet corner and you know then we did some other things but when we did our feedback she said that was the really big moment when I, and I literally did nothing for her to experience that. She's like, you brought me to a place of healing so quickly. And I was like, oh, okay, well, thanks for the credit, but I had nothing to do with that as far as I'm concerned. I had a very strong intuition to ask you about your first session. And I, I'm really glad that we talked about it before we went into session together. Um, because even though your practitioner did a beautiful job processing it and encouraging you, um, I think, as I told you at the time, there's so much judgment we put on ourselves that our experience is not measuring up to what we've seen in the movies or in a show. So I think the example I gave you was darkness. Darkness caused one of my clients anxiety and fear. And it's hard to know whether you want to narrate everything, whether you want to verbal vocalize everything. I don't think you should. So don't criticize yourself for censoring yourself or you can take your time before you share what you're experiencing. And the practitioner needs to be patient and wait for you to have a full experience or a, a full segment of experience before you feel like it's a good time for you to speak. Because just like, a practitioner like me blurting my two cents is disruptive because it takes you out of your experience even by trying to rephrase back to you what you're saying so too does your forcing yourself to speak take you out of the experience you're meant to have i think we should mention that your two cents um I, you you know right i guess as a practitioner whether it's you from your thinking mind or if it's intuition because there was a, a like such a light bulb moment in our session where you did add two cents, but maybe you feel like it wasn't yours, like it was just intuition that was given to you. But I'm so glad you did insert your observation because that was like, it just made all the pieces fit together. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Thank you for saying that. So I'm getting mixed, I'm getting mixed feedback. And the question that's coming up for me, and I'd love your opinion is, should I hold on to that for the post-game analysis? I just feel like you brought some very intuitive insights both during and after the session. And 
uh, I was asking the Akashic Records about, um, you know, my dream interpretation business that I'm trying to get set up with. And it's the kind of thing where the people who are supposed to come to you are going to find you. And it was telling me that not everyone's going to find value in what I offer. And then that's completely okay. And that, but that the people who do need to connect with me are going to be the ones to find me. And even if they have a horrible experience, they, I guess they needed to have that experience to be able maybe to compare something going forward or like, okay, maybe this is, this is not what I want. So they know now what they are looking for. I don't know. But I think it's fantastic that you're actually putting it out there uh, for people to, to, to connect and ask for your help um, in navigating uh, some healing. Um, I would, the podcast I just released was with a hypnotist. Do that. And Thank he you was for talking about how none of the healing happens with the thinking mind because it's the subconscious mind that does that has all the patterning, the, the programming that we act from right. in sort of to make any lasting change is what she was so geared towards. She wants lasting change is by guiding people to the subconscious place and, uh, and finding that healing uh, within themselves. Yeah. Well, don't worry too much that you're aware of what's happening. I think it's possible to shut off your conscious mind and still be awake. I think that's what's happening because your conscious mind was not driving the bus during our session. Um, I think we just have unrealistic expectations. People are, are looking for so many ways to shut their, um, their conscious mind from drugs to binaural beats. Eben Alexander was in a, a, a coma uh, and, and then spent, do you know him, Eben Alexander? Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, Proof of Heaven, and then I forget the title that followed that, but it, he was a neurosurgeon teaching at Harvard Medical School, I believe, and he, so he was an expert in the anomalous experience he had. He was in a coma um, of the type that only occurs in infants. Hmm. Like he knew from a medical perspective that it was impossible that his body would be doing. But his colleagues saw him there in, in, in the ICU and processed it the way they were trained to do. And meanwhile, he was having an ecstatic experience in, in um, a life between lives kind of zone um, and came back to health, consciousness and health and he was completely changed and he didn't fit into his world anymore. He didn't fit with his wife anymore. He didn't fit with his colleagues anymore. And he proceeded to embark on this search for how to, how to connect with that ecstasy and that unconditional love. And okay. You know what? I think I recall, I didn't recall his name at first, but his story is, is making sense. I do recall that. Yes. He was a doctor himself, right? You said? He's a, he was a neurosurgeon and yes, a professor. Okay, yes, and I, I got to have breakfast with him at a consciousness conference in Virginia. He came with his new life partner who um, he met in this search because she, she markets what she calls sacred acoustics. And it's using highly engineered sound to suppress conscious uh, cognitive activity. Mm. 
So he's so aware of how the brain functions and how it can be damaged by drugs. He knew he didn't want to do permanent damage to himself. So he was really exploring alternatives. And we, we had an experience with Karen's uh, sacred acoustics and they're wonderful. And I, I came very close to buying a $15,000 chair. I didn't do it. My, one of my clients, uh, my Reiki client, he was in um, a, a National Institute of Health um, rehab program or research program where he didn't have to pay to recover from alcoholism and drug addiction, but he was a subject. And I was invited to visit him and while he was living in the hospital. And he's like, you have to check out these chairs. So um, there's, they surround you. You're, they're still open, but you okay. sort of climb, it's almost like a womb. And then um, it's like a womb in that your ears are covered with this wall and the sound is much more intense. So it doesn't have to be loud, but it's just a very immersive sound. We were thinking of like co-owning one of these chairs when he got out and then we, we got over that. Um, because it can be effective with just headphones. You don't need to buy the chair. Well, it's, it's a beautiful tool. And what Karen does with sacred acoustics is um, she combines specific types of beats with specific guided meditations that are in harmony uh, in service of a particular goal, a healing goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so so free plug for Karen and Sacred Acoustics. Um, it, it really is wonderful. I have a few of them. I haven't used them lately, but I used to use them. Um, I used to offer them to Reiki clients. I'm saying used to because I stopped doing healing in person with COVID. Mm-hmm. But I would offer the headphones to people who like that. Some people like silence during their Reiki. Some people like my voice to just use my words to relax them and then they're in their own silent space. Um, and some people loved having the sacred acoustics on the whole time and Karen's voice. So, so it's not completely unrelated to what I'm doing now, but instead of standing with somebody with my hands on different, do you know much about Reiki energy? I've actually taken Reiki level one. Oh, cool. So you get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I know some people hover in the energy field, but I was one of the, the light touch. I still am. I liked being able to feel the rhythm and, 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 and feel the, get the, because the, I'm a feedback person. That's one of the things that I, I mean, that's what I love about doing the play dates is that I'm participating. I'm present. Well, and so with the astral play date, um, let's, I guess we can just break it down. Some people can come with no expectation, right? No questions that they want answered. Right. And you'll just kind of guide them through some visualizations where they invite in a spirit friend, or I'm not sure exactly how you do what it is <laughs> that you do, but uh, you can either just go with the flow yeah, or uh, you your clients come with uh, questions, specific questions that they want answered. Do you yeah, find... They can, they, can come, they can come out of a place of suffering, of a, a place of pain, emotional or physical pain or both. They can come from a place of grief, um, overwhelm, loss of purpose, loss of direction, um, healing from, you know, grief can be for a relationship or, or um, after a death. So challenges 
questions, suffering, or curiosity, I would say. Question for you. Do you find that for most people who come with a specific wounding or uh, issue that they want addressed, that the universe meets them there and that gets addressed? Or does it still just have like a life of its own and it's all over the place? Uh, both. It, it's, um, so I, I itemize different offerings on my website and I classify it as um, receive healing, receive spirit guidance, visit a past life, or receive the wisdom of life between lives. Because these are the four distinct types of experiences that come up in session. And we can start in one and just end up in another. Um, so for me, they're invitations or four distinct invitations or gateways into the, the space where this happens. But um, I feel like, well, obviously there's a higher wisdom that's running the session. And I love when a client says, oh, so here's what's going on with me, but I'm open because it's always not what they expect. It's never what they expect. Right, um, because if it was what they expected, then they could have probably done it already. They could have done it themselves. <laughs> they could have sat and meditated. They, sh they could have had yes. a mantra based on what they expected. I will yeah. be told that I am, I am good the way I am. I am be told that I am lovable with my imperfections. You know, whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. But no, it's, it's what we don't know that we don't know. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what we don't know we need. So you have to, you have to bring that sense of adventure and um, openness. You don't have to, but it's, there's a greater efficacy in the experience. There's a greater efficacy in healing if you bring curiosity, humility, um, a not knowing. What I posted today on Astral Pleiades was a quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. I've been thinking about him this past week because he was such a close friend of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Um, they were hand in arm in arm crossing the bridge in Selma in 1965. And, um, and can I just uh, bring up something like, yes, uh, in Martin Luther King Jr. We all have this great, um, you know, idea of the person he was, but then, you know, in his personal life, you know, he had, he was making several, you know, questionable choices that other people could cast judgment on. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me when we go back to the fact that it's not us who's doing the work, we're just allowing. And so you were talking about, you know, that pressure of being that wise woman, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yes. Yeah. Well, that, well, actually, what I was going to say that Rabbi Heschel said that resonated for me so much that I shared it on Instagram is he said, we're closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. So the, the less arrogant we are, the more wisdom we can receive. Okay. So if you show up at your session, and I know my physical therapist has patients like this. They're like, this is what's wrong with me and this is what I need you to do. I need ultrasound on my scapula. I need you to manipulate my, you know, like, really? Okay, thanks for doing my job for me. Um, so when you come to the session just receptive without the answer of what you need, you're going to 
receive, you're going to be, uh, it's, it's so obvious, it's like circular reasoning, but if you're open to receive, then you're going to receive. And if you're only open to receive a visual experience with, with butterflies, then you're going to be disappointed. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing you because I went through the same disappointment because I had an expectation and my sessions have not met them. So I'm looking forward to being a client again, because that's a tremendous opportunity for growth as a person, but also as a practitioner. And I also, just as much as I want to return to the practitioner role with deeper and deeper humility and allowing, I also want to come to my next client experience as just an empty vessel. How can people find out more about you and follow what you're making in your own sandbox? Thank you so much, April. I mean, you, you're, you're broadening, you're widening my circle of awareness um, just by sharing this conversation, sharing your, your listenership with me. And I appreciate that so much. I do want to help the people who are looking for me to find me. So I'm created a website, which will be live soon, com. That's also the name of my Instagram and my Facebook and my future YouTube channel. So I'll just keep everything very simple and um, consistent as I produce content. It's just with the intention that it will come into people's conscious mind and hopefully something in them will resonate uh, from the images and words that I share and they'll feel called to get on a zoom call with me and and have a play date I love how in the lifestylist podcast Luke's story ends his pods asking his guests this question so I'm including it in mine who have been three teachers or teachings in your life that you might share with our audience that they could go research and also learn from well, I've mentioned a couple of authors today who had tremendous influence on me. They're Brian Weiss, MD, and Eben Alexander, MD. My Reiki teacher is Bruce Davis. He lives in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, Courtney Starkey is who brought us together. So she is a teacher of mine to whom I am very grateful. She was also a past life regression a therapist for me at a time where I really needed the wisdom from uh, that I received by visiting a past life with her. And I hope this is, doesn't sound too hokey, but I do feel like my, my greatest teachers are in the spirit realm and I'm so grateful to be connecting to that wisdom now. Well, thank you, Nancy, so much for joining me in Sheffy's Sandbox. Much love. I have had a delightful time. Thank you so much, April.